0: Script Pipeline reviews screenplays and TV pilots to connect writers with Hollywood's top producers and managers. For over 20 years, the company has helped launch the writing careers of some of the industry's brightest talent, resulting in spec sales totaling over $7 million. The deadline for this year's screenwriting and TV writing seasons is May 1st. Learn more at scriptpipeline.com. Welcome
1: to Paper Team, a podcast about thousand writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, AKA TV Calling. Nick Watson is at underscore Angie Watson. And today we are presenting a recording of our amazing panel we did last week for WonderCon 2019 on the topic of comics and television writing. And we were joined by an all-star cast of writers, including Mark Bernardin, Julian Shauna Benson, Chris Monfette, Jay Holtham, and Sam Levenches. So we now go live to room 207 in the Anaheim Convention Center for our amazing panel. <music>
2: Welcome, everyone. I'm Alex Friedman, a.k.a. TV Colin. I'm Nick Watson on Twitter, underscore NJ Watson. And together, we host a TV writing podcast called Paper Team. And we've been going on for about three years now. And this is our third WannaCon panel. So thank you, guys, for joining us.
0: Yeah. So today we are pleased to bring you an all-star panel on the topic of comics and TV writing and mashing those two things together. We do have a pretty star studded cast to still introduce you. Yeah. So
2: if uh, you guys can introduce yourselves going down the line, as well as the shows and comics you've worked on, and your favorite comic book series as well.
3: Dude, I didn't know I had to do that. <laughs> uh, okay, my name is Mark Bernardin. I... Aww. Aww, thank you guys. For me uh, TV wise I've written on Alphas And Castle Rock And Treadstone And I'm currently working on Carnival Row For Amazon uh, Comics wise I've written The Authority And Static And Wolverine And The High Women And Genius For Top Cow um, And my favorite Comic book series Of all time <sighs> Dude uh, Sandman I get to go first So I get to pick The big one
4: <laughs> I am Shawna Benson I'm Julie Benson. Yeah. We are the sisters. Together so. we're, I don't know. <laughs> we have no superpowers. Uh, we
5: uh, are a writing team. We uh, have worked on television series such as The 100, and the upcoming Netflix series, Woo Assassins, Yay! with Iku from the Raid movies. He's really awesome. Amazing. Amazing. And then uh, for comics, we uh, revived uh, Birds of Prey, Batgirl and the Birds of Prey for DC and Rebirth Era, and, uh, and then we did a very brief run on Green Arrow, a uh, favorite comic series of all time. Crisis.
4: Does that count? I guess. I'm saying Crisis. <laughs>
5: okay, um, I, uh, too many, um, I, I'm gonna go with, uh, because I just finished the first book and I love it, Saga.
6: I was gonna oh, say, wow. <laughs> what the hell, alright, fine. Hi, uh, I'm Jay Holtham, uh, I worked on, thank you, I worked on, um, Cloak and Dagger, seasons one and two, of uh, the upcoming season of Jessica Jones, Uh, As well, season three, upcoming and final. Uh, And my favorite comic series of all time, I'll go with my new hotness, which is Die by Kieran Gillen. A big fan of that. If you're not reading it, uh, get on board.
7: Hi, I'm Samantha LaVentis. I uh, worked on the sci fi show Night Flyers uh, on the support staff, and I'm currently writing Neon Future for Impact Theory Comics and my favorite comic book series (laughs) of all time um, Why the Last Man?
4: There you go.
8: Uh, I'm Christopher Monfette. I was a writer on uh, Twelve Monkeys for Sci-Fi uh, for four seasons, and now I'm on Nine One One over at Fox. Nice. Uh, I rebooted uh, Hellraiser as a series for Boom uh, along with Clive Barker a couple years back, and there's no way I can answer the of all time portion <laughs> of the question, but I'm really digging um, the fix right now from uh, Nick Spencer and Steve Lieber and uh, Euthanauts. Teeny Howard's book is. Incredible.
0: So, why do you feel comics as a medium make for great television, and why are comic properties so hot right now?
4: I uh, <laughs> can only picture what's this fist going. So
0: hot right now. So hot. Hansel.
3: Right <laughs> I mean, comics are a serial medium, right? Like, it's, you're, you're getting installments of a story month by month, and that's all the television is. They're both serial storytelling delivery systems. And so figuring out ways as a comic book writer to get people to come back month after month is similar to getting people to come back week after week in TV. The the rhythms of the sort of push and pull of, like, give the first taste, make them come back for more, is, uh, is built in to both kinds of storytelling, for me, anyway.
5: And I think it's easily adaptable, at least in the minds of a lot of executives, because They can see pretty pictures, which is a lot like looking at storyboards, um, which then allows them to really visualize what a series would look like on the television screen or on a feature film. So I think that's the, why is it so hot? It's just because it looks so easy. The reality being somewhat different.
4: Yeah, an existing IP. They like something that they know has a beginning, middle, and end somewhere so that they don't have to do as much work. Um, and then we get to do all the work, so that's always fun. That's cool. Uh,
6: and also, I mean, with the existing IP, I feel like comic books come with the beginning, middle, and end, but also in such an open world that it becomes really attractive for that, like, universe thing of we can, spin off, we can spin off a billion of these forever and ever. We don't can just, yeah, exactly, with, the, with existing characters. We don't have to just, like, make up random shit.
7: Yeah, I think somebody <laughs> else. Did. Somebody else did. Yeah. Mm. I think people get really attached to the characters in the comic books that they love, and then they want to watch everything that people can create within that universe surrounding those characters. And television gives them a way to do that, so it's an easy sell.
8: <laughs> it's really easy to be last in line because I can just gonna go yeah
7: <laughs> to
8: all of this. But I, and I think it's all right. But I think when when I go in and I pitch and I talk to executives about TV. There being a story engine is so important to just what is the fuel of of the show and and how does it propel itself from week to week. And I think that's aside from structure. Comic books are built around stories that have a narrative that propels itself forward and that is just so easily adaptable to TV because it allows people to say, not only do I see what you're trying to do in season one, I see what season five can be.
2: Well, to that point, uh, having worked in both TV and comics, can you guys walk us through the process of writing a comic as opposed to a TV show? Are there writers' rooms for comic books? Are there summits? Or is it more of a solitary process, kind of like writing a feature?
8: My experience writing comic books was was interesting in that I mean I had kind of ownership over Hellraiser when I first got into that, but I had the sounding board of Clive Barker to you know sort of throw everything up against, and so um, it, it it was kind of simultaneously a solo and a team experience. Whereas I think in in the room, uh, you know, when you're writing for TV, I always say you know the best the best day in the room is not when you come in with the slam dunk idea. It's when you come in with like half an idea that someone else says, what if you took that, threw this out and then took this and put on it and you're like, oh, that is so much better than when I was pitching. Um, and the reward is really in the collaboration. Um, whereas I think for comics, the, re- the sort of reward and the hit and the fix you get is seeing the art come in for what you did um, and just the sort of overwhelming sensation of going, that's awesome.
7: Uh, the comic book I'm working on, they actually hired four of us, to, four writers, to come in and break it like a TV show. So we all met up and we talked about um, the six-issue arc we were doing, like we would break a season of television, um, and then we split up scripts and did outlines and brought them back and wrote scripts and brought them back and got notes. And uh, it was very similar to the process you'd ordinarily see in a television writing room, Um but done for comics, which is not typically the way comics happen. So my experience has been very different.
4: Well, so we ended up breaking um, and working with comics the same way we learned how to do it in TV. So we we broke story, we had note cards, Um, And then we would split it in half. She would write some. I would write the other half. And it was the same process that we had for television, for story. And then whenever the process comes through with your art and your letter and everything else, that's when you really see, oh, yeah, yeah, the collaboration of what you're used to having in a writer's room becomes collaboration on the page, if that makes sense. And, yeah.
5: Yeah, I would say that we probably
4: function much more like
5: a TV writer's room because there's two of us. So we can sort of sit and, you know, do that pitch and collaboration. We have
4: LaCroix at our house, so (laughs) it's basically the same.
5: There's a lot of yelling and throwing things. We can
4: Postmates food and pretend they're a PA or something. (laughs) You can take turns.
3: For me, the the experience is a little bit more, um, when you're writing a comic book, you get to talk to the audience with so few filters. It's probably of all of the mainstream entertainment narrative delivery systems, aside from writing a novel, it is the purest version of intent to delivery to the audience, right? It's you writing a script. It's an editor, hopefully not touching the script. It's an artist interpreting the script, a letterer doing the letters, and then the reader reads it and that's it. TV, there's like 87 different levels between <laughs> the, the message and the medium and the intended recipient of it. And so understanding that the thing that you thought was awesome on the script and TV is probably not going to make it to the screen, you know, like my very first TV show was on Alphas, and I remember getting dailies back of the show that I wrote, and I was heartbroken because uh, they looked like shit. And one of my colleagues says, well, that's the thing about TV. You have to imagine the worst possible version of what you wrote and be prepared to get that. Whereas in comics, it's like, listen, we kind of handpicked the artist and we knew what we were going to get. And... It, it can be the closest thing to what you imagined um, possible. TV, it's, it's, it's a collaborative medium sometimes to its detriment,
0: and more often than not, to its great credit. But the experience is different. So creatively, how do you go about adapting a comic to television? When you're sitting down in the room, what are the things you're focusing on? Is it characters, storylines, mythology? What's your process?
3: I, whenever I'm adapting anything, I kind of obey the William Goldman rule, which is like read the book two or three times and then tell the story of that to somebody else from memory. And the things that you remember when you're telling it are the things that you love about it that for you become essential to it. And as long as you can retain what makes the book special, what made it what made it the thing that you're excited to do in the first place, that is preserving the spirit of the work. You're never gonna be true to the letter of the work because the letter of the work is not, it's Watchmen. Come on, it's Watchmen, which is not an adaptation, it's a translation, and that's not your job. Your job is to adapt. And so find out what you think is special about it and then build a wall around that. And, and it's Peggy Carter. It's compromise where you can, but when you can't, don't. Like this part is inviolable. This part you can't touch. This is what makes it the reason you bought it. As long as we can all agree on that, then we can make a thing. But it's finding that that's special.
5: Yeah, and I think that it's the agree part where sometimes we run into the, the, the challenges because what one person's adaptation of a, a work is going to be, it, it can be obviously wildly different than someone else's adaptation of that work. So, I mean, it's it's definitely something I think that audiences now much more understand than maybe originally because it did feel like it was supposed to be translation, hence the sort of like Harry Potter book one slash movie one, which Mm -hmm. is like this literal translation of the book to screen. And then as they got through the series, it started to become much more about adapting that to the screen and much more about the process that Mark describes than that sort of one to one ratio. So yeah, you lose some Dobby scenes, but you know,
6: <laughs>
3: yeah. Like no, did nobody re- who loves Lord of the Rings really missed Tom Bombadil.
5: <laughs> it right? did not.
6: It <laughs> did not. I will, I will go on record as saying it 100% did not miss Tom Bombadil. No.
5: <laughs> I, no, we were good. We were all good. I don't know. There was like two guys like yelling in the back of the theater, and that was you know, it's like those guys were like
4: Bombadil. <laughs> is that on the extended DVD? Did I miss it? No. I think they
6: shot.
3: Oh. They're like nobody wants this much singing and walking. We're done.
6: <laughs> but that's like in like working on Cloak and Dagger in particular. Like that's one of the that exact translation is the thing because like Mark was saying, you try to dial into what is at the core of this story and what is at the core of this thing. And with Cloak, we have these two characters who are tied together. Uh, and of course, working with Cloak and Dagger, having come out in 1996 those characters were really steeped in the like racial and social politics of 1996 and comic book costume design that uh, we did not want to do at all. And it was like trying to find the ways to translate what that meant in 1986, to update it in a way that stays true to the, the core of the thing but that does not involve, you know, boot windows and creepy black guy with no body. Because uh, those are things you want to avoid. Yeah,
8: I've, I've had the good fortune in my career to kind of, uh, uh, to be able to kind of adapt in both directions. I've taken 30-page short stories and blown them up into two-hour movies. I've taken two-hour movies and worked on adapting them into 48-episode, you know, four-season arcs. And for me, I think it always boils down to are you honoring the intention of the piece, but also responding to and echoing and adding to why you were drawn to it in the first place. Because it's not just I find, at least, or it's what keeps it not boring for me, which is when I read that source material, it inspired something and spoke to something in me. And if he can inspire me to say something that fits with that and sits on top of it and it coexists with it, then you're adding a little bit of yourself to that and it becomes more personal and it becomes, you know, in a weird way, collaborative over distance. Mm-hmm.
2: And to that idea of translating one format to the other, comic books are such a visual format, much like TV, and maybe this is more of a production question, but do you ever consider the panels of a comic book series, especially those iconic imageries and those issues, and translating those into TV, or does that not really enter your mind?
8: I mean, I'll say, from my point of view, having written and produced my show, you know, having been on set uh, for, you know, the production and the supervision of episodes, the fundamental panel-based... Uh, format of a comic book taught me so much about what are we going to need? <laughs> so when you're sitting behind the director and you're just kind of hoping the actors are going to you know do the scene well and he'll direct it well, and at the end of the day you go, oh, no, 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 I know I'm going to be in post and I'm going to be editing this later, and you've missed a shot that I'm desperately going to need because... It teaches you this economy of visuals, right? It's like, I have to explain this tremendously complex sequence in eight or four or 16 panels or one panel if you're doing a splash page. And it, it, it is a kind of masterclass in directing on the page that then really does translate to the physical production of a show.
6: Yeah. On the shows that I've worked on, we've always had comic book panels and pages and storylines, but like, there were always a few sort of iconic panels where like, we like this image. But that's always the way we approach it. Of We like this image. This image is evocative. This image is interesting. How do we recreate this image or retranslate this image? Um, one of the other shows that I, I got to work on very briefly was uh, Daredevil. Uh, uh, it was on season four.
3: No. <sighs> <Aww. laughs> uh, <laughs> too, yeah. too soon.
6: Too soon. <laughs> too soon. Too soon. Um, and one of the things I thought that they did very well, particularly in season three, was take images from the born-again storyline and kind of remix them into a different story. Uh, And we tried to do that a lot on Cloak as well. It's like, what are the images that stand out as interesting from Cloak and Dagger? And how do we recreate that, re reimagine it, but without it becoming sort of slavish? You know, there's a lot of. Whose decision is stage.
4: it? Is it the showrunner? Is it the director? Like, who gets to say, oh, this image on page nine from.
6: Mostly you know. the showrunner. Like, okay. Joe came in with a lot of the, the books, and like, it was something that he tasked the room with as well to, like, go through the books and pull uh, our support staff, our writer's assistants, uh, and writer's PAs did a lot of that work as well of going through books and finding the images and saying, these are the interesting images. You guys should look at these. And then for us to like return to them, not just as like, oh, we wanna recreate that on screen, but also this is what's at core of the thing. Uh, Cause you can really just fall into also like, splash page movie making, where all you're doing is making these big static images that actually tell you nothing about story.
8: Zack Snyder. I think, people, I think people like to see... I think people like to see the remix, you know, I think people, you know, uh, comic book fans when they come to a television show or a movie are always in some ways, if you do it well, if you do it badly, you're going to get skewered for it. But if you do it well, um, they really enjoy being like, oh, you took this thing and this thing and put them together. So I'm getting the familiar, I'm getting what I like, but I'm getting it in a completely different context or way or sequence. And that's just fun for everybody to do.
7: Yeah.
3: I mean, for for me, the thing that makes comic books special and different from almost every other form of literature is not the panels themselves, but it's a space between the panels, right? It's the it's the gutters, because you as a reader are filling in that information. You're bringing something to this work. Any other form of literature you're reading, you're reading it. It's, you're being told everything, kind of. You can imagine what they look like in their head, but all the context of the drama is being told to you. And so finding out what those gutters are for you as the person adapting it, finding out those pieces that nobody else gets to see that we all imagine in our own heads as part of the storytelling, how are we going to concretize that in a way that makes it feel as if it's the same thing that you saw when you read it? You know, it's that's, again, like not to go back to Lord of the Rings, but the magic of that was like Peter Jackson clawed into our own back brain idea of what that world looked like and he made it real. And I feel like that's the opportunity in adapting comics for the screen is to find out where those sweet spots are, and they almost always are in between the gutters of how do you make this yours, and how do you how do you elevate what was one thing, and how do you transform it into something else? And it's that it's the gooey space between. <laughs> yeah.
5: Really quickly, I will say one of the things that um, we learned writing comics that I didn't really understand was the importance of a great letterer, um, and they really are an unsung hero in comics because the one thing that the letterer has to do is make the panels flow, make the information flow make sense because your eye reads the page and it reads it in a certain order. And if you put the panels in the wrong places, the information gets mixed up. And and so yeah, where the balloons are as you're reading across the page. So it was something that I did not really understand intrinsically, but once I realized that, it was like, well, of course, we do that in television all the time, right? I mean, it is a matter of pacing and, you know, and where the pauses go. I mean, that's, that's essentially a little bit of what the is doing. So I just wanted to shout out to the letterers because <laughs> they do rad work.
0: Uh, flowing on from that, Julian, and Sean, having worked in television first, what lessons were we able to take from TV writing into comics writing?
4: I think we took a couple bad lessons with us, which was, we'll just just talk down about ourselves for a good 40 minutes. Uh, No, the the one thing we had to sort of be reminded of uh, when we first started doing Birds of Prey is we sent in our first script. They're like, this is great, this is great. I think it was actually the second script, and it was um, the the number one. They didn't do a zero, it was two ones. Anyway. we didn't think we were we had our producer hats on and so for television when you have your producer hat on you're like, all right, what can we afford? We can't have a helicopter, all right, we're gonna have to shoot that at night, that's gonna cost us money. like you're really thinking of it's dollar signs when you're writing TV sometimes. And so we would write our script for birds of prey, we send it in and we're like, this is gonna be great, producible. And it's like, you idiots, you can put a helicopter in the comic book, you can put zoo animals in the comic book in our editors too. To this day, we're so sweet. They were like, oh, I just, you know, we wanted to see if you guys wanted to just go a little bigger with this. And we're like, what do you mean? are like, well, you know, we kind of talk about this thing here, but we're not really seeing it. Do you want them to, sh-? oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, that was the last time they had to tell us, and I think they regretted it ever since. But, you know. I will say the positive lessons
5: are a, a couple. One that primarily comes to mind is, you know, the, the job in television writing, film writing is show don't tell. Right? So you have to rely on visuals. And that's why a collaboration with an artist is so very important because comics being a visual medium, you need to be able to not just tell your story through the dialogue. You have to have the images that go along with it. That's what everybody is going to look at first. They're going to look at the pretty pictures and then they'll read the words. So uh, that was something at least coming from television, I think was sort of an easy to adapt lesson. Um, Also, yeah, also a lot more breaks in uh, (laughs) comics writing, like taking breaks, you know.
2: (laughs) And uh, Mark, what were some of the lessons you took from writing comics first that you brought into your writer's room?
3: Uh, Speed, I think, Um, economy of words. I mean, one of the first things you learn when you're writing a comic is that you've overwritten a comic. <laughs> uh, you know, like you'll write a draft and it's like, hey, this is great, I know, I love it. And then the art comes in and you find yourself cutting half of what you wrote because the pictures are actually doing the work. Um, and I think the thing that I took from journalism even before I got to comics and then from comics to, to TV is that, you know, deadlines are inviolate. You know, like in journalism, there has to be a newspaper out today. There has to be a magazine out this week. There has to be a website that has things on it this hour. Um, and you can't just do like the sketchbook version. We're like, Hey, it's blank pages, you know, for fun. Um, they frown on that. So it's, it's being able, being able to do the work, being able to do it quickly and being able to release it when it's done. You know, you can't obsess over things that long in comics and in TV because somebody behind you has got to spend tens of millions of dollars making it real. And so you don't have time to just like dick around with this word here and, but what if you said that? But what if I said this here? But what if it was in space? Like, no, it's gotta get done. Um, so I think it's, it, was, it was those things. It was, it was more like production-y things of just like doing the work, doing it as well as you can, turning it in and letting it go and on to the next one.
8: To echo exactly that point, I found that the, the experience of sitting and editing uh, on a TV show, was the experience of getting the art back uh, in a comic book. Of you are sitting there and you are writing the script and you are high fiving yourself in your mind. You're like, "That monologue was awesome," and then you get a cut back and you're like, "Oh, cut that monologue. It totally doesn't work here. The scene's much better without what it." What
4: idiot wrote that? <laughs> yeah,
8: you're like, "Who, who did that? That wasn't totally unnecessary." And it's it's this humbling experience of sort of and and learning experience every every script every episode. Of of just a economy of words, um, but also of just saying, you know, because uh, of just switching hats, you know, because when you're a writer, you're just trying to serve the best version of the scene on the page. Then when you're sitting in post, you're trying to create the best version of the scene that audiences are actually going to watch, and that demands that you throw out and eject a level of ego and ownership in service to the material, and not just in service to your own writing, which is not always easy to do. <laughs>
0: Uh, So, Chris, writing for horror, how do you convey the same kind of visceral thrills that you get on the screen onto the page for comic?
8: Um, It's interesting because I think you, in some ways, are... I found, uh, when I was writing Hellraiser, for example, um, you just could get away with more. You know, you could get away with more on the page, and you were forced to think about horror not as... um, a, like an idea or a cool kill you're you're forced or whatever you're th- you're forced to think about it as an image like what single image and, and how is this going to what is this going to evoke in the reader and how in and of itself absent of motion can this image be striking and have someone read it and go oh god that's horrifying you know and in the case of hellraiser we were sort of walking this weird line of like you know just because of the nature of the story it had to be horrifying but also kind of weirdly poetic and have all that sort of clive barker um sort of look and feel to it and you know uh, talk about you know monologuing pinhead does nothing if not monologue and so um on top of like what's the grossest weirdest thing that i can show and then what's the most like beautiful languid poem i can write about that image that pinhead can be espousing as he you know rips someone apart with some chains um and so yeah it's just thinking about it i think as, as single tableaus um, but then also just trying to write motion into the panels so that you can convey a sense of urgency, um, and you can convey a sense of movement, um, even in just a static set of images.
4: Were all your scares on the turns, the page turns?
8: Um, a lot of them, a lot of them were, um, and you know, but it, it depend. It all depended if I was trying to, or I felt like the scene called for a reveal, or if it, if it called for um, a kind of like escalation and a de-escalation within the span of two pages. Because sure. you know, sometimes you'd you'd have a bit of motion carryover somehow from like the last panel on on the first page to the first panel on the second page, and then the aftermath of that. Um, so it depended kind of on the scene.
3: And, like, the other thing that you can do in comics that you can't really do in TV is you can control the passage of time and the rate at which it goes, right? Like, the fewer panels you have on a page, the faster you read it. And so the experience of, like, rushing through stuff and then the more panels you have to slow down and pull back and suddenly you're taking time on this page that you didn't think you were going to take. And all of that, especially for horror, like, all of that, like, controlling the experience of receiving the narrative Mm -hmm. and all those tools. And, yeah, the page turns are, like... Like, ah, that's the
8: closest you get to, like, the jump scare. Like, ah! well, It was funny because the, for me, the, the sort of my weirdly audition tape for uh, Hellraiser was a one-off comic that Clive and I did for IDW called Seduth, which was a 3D comic book, which had, I swear to God, no discernible story. I couldn't even tell you what the thing was about. It was just kind of this tone poem that Clive had imagined. He's like, well, let's do this. Not only in you know panel form and as a comic book, but a comic book that now you have to you can move and interact with the image in a strange way, and there's a whole other dimensionality there. Uh, yeah, it was, it was challenging.
2: Did you have to wear glasses to read the comic?
8: Yep. Yeah, the old you know red and blue. And, yeah.
2: So this is kind of for anyone who wants to take this. But do you have any do's and don'ts when translating a comic into a TV show that you've learned over the years? Yeah, don't fuck it up.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah
6: that's pretty much it. Like, I mean, the only do is yeah, just tell the story. Tell the story you're trying to tell. Like, don't stay, don't stay tied to, to the representation or the the transliteration of the thing. Like, mix it up, have fun with it. Take chances, you know, all the sort of standard, like, writing stuff. Uh, try not to get too locked into, you know, what the comic book was, you know, um, or what the comic book, or what you think the comic book could be. Let it be something weirder and funkier, you know. Take two junkies from, I think, Harlem in the 80s and make them teenagers in New Orleans today. And it's like, that's, those things have nothing to do with each other, except it has everything to do with each other. Because it's about the, goddamn Jeff Lowe, it's about these two kids. That Jeff has always wanted to say. So,
3: yeah. Well, yeah, like television is character, right? Like, it's yeah. always character. The reason why you tune in week after week is because you learn to love, or at the very least, empathize with these people. Comic books can be character. Um, sometimes they're not. Sometimes it's just explosions. <laughs> Yay, punchy that's not why people show up for tv so you have to remember to like double down on why am i coming back to these people every week why am i investing myself into their worlds and their their wins and losses and woes and triumphs and romances and heartbreaks that's why we
4: tune in and it's timing i mean the birds of prey tv show in the 90s would be a total hit today it was just at the wrong time. No one wanted five female leads on TV at that time, whether they want to admit it or not. No one was watching that. Um, so something that could have worked, you know, 10 years ago, 90s was 10 years ago, right?
5: Yeah. <laughs> the show was 2001. Uh-huh. You're close.
4: 2001 was 10 years ago. It was 10 years ago. Okay. Well, I'll need a lot of therapy after this, obviously. So, uh, but, yeah, timing, too. Yeah, uh, yeah
5: I think... Um, One of the things that we certainly benefited from writing comics was learning a little bit how to tell the story of action sequences and action scenes and fights. Um, Because the thing you start to realize is that all of those kinds of things have to tell a story, otherwise it's just people punching at each other. Yeah. Yeah, the story of the fight. There is a beginning, a middle, and an end to every action sequence, to every fight. And once you have to do that on a panel by panel basis, you get a lot better at telling the story of the action. Um, So that really, I think, helped translate to TV. Um, The other thing I'll I'll mention, I I know Jason Rothenberg has told this story before about adapting the hundred. Um, It was a YA novel, but it wasn't actually a novel at the time that they pitched and sold the show. It was an outline. So, you know, Jason Rothenberg had an outline for a book that was being written. And so he had a list of characters, he had, you know, a setting, he had, you know, sort of a summary of what the story was going to be. And he took that and he evolved that. So you know, with the with the help of a lot of different people. So again, it's sort of a a thing of that book and that television show are wildly different. Mm. Um, The television show became something else, even from itself. After the first two or three episodes, it evolved into a different thing because it found its voice and that voice was very different than the voice that the book had. But those characters are the same in name, but, you know, and in maybe their core essence, but there's not a lot of other similarity between those two different pieces of media. I think you're also
8: walking this sort of razor thin line or tightrope between Honoring the source material and, and what you love about the source material and those characters and the intent of the author. Also trusting your own creative instincts in adapting that and in, um, if you can, devi- in deviating from the specifics and service to the bigger themes and the bigger characters, that you know, you don't have to follow every arc exactly how it played out in the book. You don't have to present every scene the exact same way that it was presented. You can take creative deviations, if it is in the service, of honoring the thing that everybody loves about the thing that you're there to make.
7: Preacher did a really, really great job of that where in the, in the books, um, it's basically a road trip from page one all the way through and in the television series the adaptation you don't get into the car until the very end of the first season the whole first season was completely different than what you thought but the characters that you loved if you read that series are right there
0: so how does someone go about breaking into comic writing is it much different from breaking into
7: tv I mean start with sam well i don't know if i have the best answer for this <laughs> i um i write and am a giant nerd who's read comics forever and I happened to be at Comic-Con and bumped into a friend of mine who uh, has a huge comic book writing career and he was like what are you doing right now and I was like I just finished up on Night Flyers so I'm writing. And he was like, great, want to come write a comic book with me? And I was like, uh, yeah? And uh, I was like, I don't know exactly how to do that. And he was like, you can do it. I'll teach you. And so
4: um,
7: I was like, oh, is this for real? And then the next week, it was for real. So that is not helpful to anybody. But can we send him a gift basket or yeah, something? That's amazing. I keep on trying to find a way to thank him. I've yet to find an adequate way yet. Well,
3: thanking Mark Wade always told this story. I attribute it to Mark Wade. I think it's apocryphal. That breaking into comics is like breaking out of jail. That no two people do it the same way and they always seal up the hole after you're in. <laughs> so like Her story is as different as my story, is as different as the Benson story. Like, I broke in because I was a journalist, and I was a journalist who covered comics, and I came to San Diego Comic-Con, and I met a bunch of people who read some things I wrote, and they said, hey, you look like you can write and maybe meet deadlines. Do you maybe want to try doing comics? And I said, yeah, man, that'd be super cool. And then I did. Um, (laughs) Which, you know, is fundamentally useless to all of you, unless you also were journalists. But But I think the idea is, like, once you get that foot in the door, what do you do with it? And how do you conduct yourself once you're in? And it's be professional, be be fast, cheap, or great. You know, if you can be two of those things, you will work forever. If you can be one of those things, you'll work for a while until you get another one of those things. And if you're three of those things, then you're like Neil Gaiman. So like, you know, it's it's what happens once you're through the door, how you conduct yourself, how you how you comport yourself with professionality, how you're creative, how you're, how you're collaborative, all these things,
8: but getting in, ah! It's funny that you say that, because as you were talking, I was like, well, my story is that I'm a geek journalist who covered geek things, and then a bunch of people read stuff that I wrote, and I was offered an opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> see, now, now I have to kill you, man. But, like, I mean, there but, can be only one.
4: You didn't close up that hole. You didn't seal it up tight enough. I think,
8: but I think in service to, to your point, it really is about um, it's about relationships. I mean, I you know, I think this all starts with with people. I mean, I, I would never have broken into comic books had I not known and met Clive Barker through being a journalist. Had he not read stuff that I had written, had he not put that trust and that faith in me And so many of my it, uh, any opportunity I've had has been, you know, gifted to me by tremendously um, good and gracious and, uh, helpful people that have sort of sent the elevator back down and passed the torch. And, and if you put yourself physically in places where lightning can strike and you do the work and you're passionate about it, and you are, uh, tenacious about meeting people, not just for your own needs, but with a genuine curiosity about what they do and who they are, those people will see that. And over time that will be rewarded. Um, that's the best advice that I can get. Go
4: ahead. Well, if you ask the internet, we probably slept our way in. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've gotten I. there a lot I, faster. I, I really <laughs> um, no, I mean, it took us a decade to write TV and essentially to write for comics, if I think about it, really. I mean, it took our whole lives to do it, but really a decade of professional... Sure. actual decade. <laughs> yeah, not my decade. <laughs> <laughs> not a Julie Benson decade. When was Birds of Prey? 2000? 2001. No, 2000, 2000. Oh, that was a year. Nothing else um, happened that <laughs> <about> year. <you>. So <laughs> nothing else happened. Um, so 10 years it took us. And it's about knowing people. It's about the gross word networking, but we use that as a, as a terminology. I mean, we knew Mark I don't even know how, I think we just met you through nerddom. The the internet. Yeah, the internet. And then we became fast friends, and you were on Alphas at the time. That was that. I think it was before Alphas. It was before Alphas. I first first met you because we did an interview with you on a podcast.
3: Yes, about a comic book. It was before
5: podcasts on Blog Talk Radio back in the day. Yeah,
3: I still don't know where that ever went. (laughs)
5: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But anyway, I mean, it does still exist. But uh, it, it, in any case, that was how we met you, but that was forever ago, it seems like. I don't know. Yeah, gross, we're old.
4: Um, and and then, look at then smell! <laughs> and then, honestly, <laughs> how we got into comics... Um, I followed everybody I could on Twitter, on Facebook, on every social media, and I genuinely followed their careers like a super weirdo stalker. Now that I say it out loud, Um, but really, it was just seeing the evolution of somebody's career and being along for that ride and having the opportunity to talk to those people online. God, if we had Twitter when X Files was on, look out, David Duchovny, like (laughs) and Chris Carter, and and every writer on that show. No, but (laughs) they would have been so pregnant by now. But yeah, so it was that, that ability to have social media, and that's how I met Jeff Johns on social media. And um, I think we sat down for a dinner and talked about comics. And I said this in our last panel I spent a good 15 minutes telling him what they did wrong in the new 52, and um, somehow he still wanted us to write a book. <laughs> and um, no, it all worked out. And
3: You
8: dinnered your way to
3: the top.
4: <laughs> it didn't, though. You no, no, no,
8: no. I feel like all these answers, though, are kind of like a testament to the power and the awesomeness of nerddom and why everybody is here today. Because it's like, this is a community. This is a community of people who, who, regardless of the books you love, the movies you love, the TV shows, love geekdom and nerddom and the shared sensibility. And it is a community that is so open and accepting that you can... You can be from the middle of nowhere and go to a convention with passion for something in your heart and knowledge about it and end up talking to someone who will hire you as an assistant and three years later, you're a writer in a writer's room and five years later, you're a showrunner. You know, I mean, you literally have access to people who just want to talk to you and want to talk about this stuff that we all share together. So I think that's great. And I think that's why we're all here.
5: And I think there is a valid pathway through self-publishing. I mean, I think that is so much bigger of a market now and, and uh, a possibility going into the future of being able to write or, and or draw your own comics that did not really exist until maybe the last decade or so. So I, I don't want that to be discounted as a possibility for people who are like, well, I just want to write my own stuff. And it's like, well, you kind of can. So go forth and create.
2: I'm here because this is vodka. <laughs> well, so you've all spoken about this idea of honoring the source material. So how do you go about interacting the uh, original creators and producers who hold the keys to that original comic? Uh, bourbon? <laughs>
3: uh, I, think, I think a lot of it is, is making them understand how much you love it and why you love it. You know, I think that, that anybody who, as somebody who had been a owner of IP, who had been talking to producers who wanted to, to do it, it's why did you love this thing to begin with? And what version of this thing do you want to make that will respect that initial love? And if you can sit down across the, the table from somebody and be like, no, I love your book. I'm gonna change like 40% of it, but not because I don't like it. It's because here's stuff that has to happen. Again, I'm not translating, I'm adapting. Like it's going to require change but know that I'm coming from I love this book and I want the message of this book, I want the reason why we love this book to translate. And if you can do that, if you can find that shared sort of love space, uh, which sounds dirtier than I intended, um, then I think yeah, you can- Don't
4: ever say that again.
3: <laughs> I mean, it's the name of my new band, you guys. Shared love space. Um, but yeah, if you can both have that, that shared love space.
8: <laughs>
6: Uh, so I'm making
3: it worse. More <laughs> I'm making it worse now. Three times will be the charm. Uh, then, then you can proceed from a place of, of mutual respect, and I think that you both can then um, take that shared love space <laughs> and, and make something great.
6: <laughs> I, having worked in sort of the like corporate playground, um, it's a it's an interesting dance between you know watching. Joe on Cloak and Dagger uh, and Melissa Rosenberg on Jessica Jones sort of work with Jeff Loeb and the, the sort of powers that be at Marvel because they're just obviously layers and layers of sort of needs and wants and PRs and bits of IP that you have to worry about, but it all does come back to, god, that shared love space <laughs> of <That's> conditioning. <laughs> of just convincing them that, that, you know, to trust us, to trust the writers in the room uh, with their toys and that we know what we're doing and that we have a vision that, that matters, that, that connects to audiences, that, that they can get behind and that will, you know, ultimately cover everyone with glory. Uh, and it just...
3: You made yeah. it worse. You
6: just made it worse. No, that's not a phrase. That's
8: like a regular... Oh, no, it's a phrase. <laughs> I feel like the challenge of whoever answers next is how I get the phrase "shared love space" in my answer. Um, I I I weirdly had the uh, the opportunity to work on projects where the, kind of the the original content creators had two were of both minds about it, right? So with with Clive, uh, and I also adapted two films for him. Um, he was confident enough in the material that he wrote and the fact that it existed as a novel and no one was going to take that away from anybody. So, you know, if you spoke passionately about it, he was like, yeah, go do your thing and do your thing however you want to do it. You're not intruding on my thing. Um, and that was, that was fantastic. And, uh, you know, and then you get to something like 12 Monkeys where Terry Gilliam could not have been more vocal about, yeah, these people are consumers' assholes who don't know what they're doing uh, and will never do anything meaningful with my work. And at, the, at that point, all you can really do is go, I love you and I love the source material and I'm going to try to honor that in the best way possible and not let it distract you from your mission to ultimately still serve the thing as best as you can serve it.
4: Yeah. I mean, we didn't really have a lot of experience with that directly, but when we took over Birds of Prey for D.C., we definitely talked to Gail Simone. It was sort of first out the gate. We really wanted to kiss that ring for loads of reasons, but just we kind of (laughs) wanted her proverbial kissing.
8: (laughs) Was that the shared love space? I'm sorry.
4: So close. (laughs) So close. And, uh, but it meant a lot to us to have her know that we were huge fans of her run and how much her run meant to us and that we really hoped we didn't screw it up and we were going to do everything in our power to make sure that everything that came before us counted and hopefully everything that comes after us does as well. And I think as long as you give the shared love space thing <laughs> to somebody, you're, you're good. Yeah. I mean, a
5: lot of these characters that we're talking about are legacy characters. Yeah. They exist... Sort of above and beyond the people that created them. Some of them were created, and the creators are long gone in some cases. So, you know, it's it, it, they become something else, and you just have to sort of do your version of that. Um, I think where it is much more connected to the creator, those situations are much more like what Mark's talking about. Yeah, yeah. You can say it. The shared love.
4: Space. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, did you have a comment? On that? It's gonna be our new Netflix show. <laughs>
7: uh,
4: we're a right. title, we're we're I
7: jumping. haven't really had an opportunity yet to collaborate directly with um, somebody's work that I'm adapting, um, so I'm not sure I can offer. Yeah. You. Well, you've got lots of love space. Yeah, <laughs> looking forward to being a part of the last
0: thing. All right, I think we have time for one more question. So um, to, to round this all up, do you feel that uh, what are the kind of expectations from fans when you're writing for a longstanding comic property, um, and how is it similar uh, with TV as well? Those fan expectations.
6: Hmm. Huh. Conf- Here you go, Jay. Accurate <laughs> costume is the bane of our existence. That remains the one expectation. And it's, again, it's that like, it's that dance between we don't want to do that, but what I found interesting, especially working on the second season, and even in the first, was all the ways that we tried to nod at it, and tried to like, invert it in some way that like, said, we're aware of this, but we're not gonna use it that way. Uh, and that's, to me, is part of this, part of the, the joy of the thing, of is fulfilling that, but giving people things that they don't, in the way that they don't expect.
4: A wink, if you will. A wink. A nod. A, a nod. Uh, you know, the 100 fans are not very um, vocal. They're not very... <laughs> <laughs> they're real quiet. They're just, you know, they just love the show, and they're just happy to be here. No, that's amazing. Uh, we used to be those fans. I mean, we are those fans for all the shows up here and that we all watch, all 7,000 shows there are now. And so... Uh, for us, it was always just an honor to talk to anybody about the show. If they were watching it and had something they loved about it, awesome. We will talk to you all day about it. If you have something you didn't like about it, there's the showrunner. You should go talk to him about it. <laughs> yeah. But, uh,
5: <laughs> yeah. Ultimately, if you're talking about you know inter- engagement with fans, interaction with fans, you know, good. It's always positive. But as creators, our responsibility is to the property, to the characters, to the story. And, and and while we love and appreciate people who love and appreciate what we do, we can't listen to all of those voices because every single person has a different opinion. Everyone.
3: Uh, I would just like to take this opportunity to say that shared love space will be playing at the Marriott lounge uh, (laughs) later tonight. So I'm just saying we're
4: fighting.
8: (laughs) Did we we just form a band?
4: (laughs) I really
3: did. Yeah, now it's happening. You guys. It's a freeform jazz explosion.
2: <laughs> uh, well, on that, before we wrap up, where can people find you online, and, uh, and as well as all your comics and shows and everything you're working on?
3: Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Mark Bernardin with uh, C's. Uh, just for the mark, not in the Bernard.
4: There's no there. <laughs> Literally trying to. I
3: know, right? Somebody sees. Uh, let's see. Um, Castle Rock is on the Hulus. All the comics are on the Comixologies. Uh, Treadstone is supposed to be out later this year. And Carnival Row is as well, I think I can What's say Treadstone out loud. On? Treadstone will be on the USA. USA. Yeah. Yes. And Carnival Row will be on Amazon.
5: Great. I am at Shauna Benson on Twitter. I am uh, Shauna M. Benson on Instagram, I think.
4: Uh, I'm the Julie Benson, which sounds super crappy. I don't know why I had that. Oh, somebody else was Julie Benson and I hate her. And she was like,
5: I'm the only one.
6: (laughs) Uh, I'm at J Holtham, uh, just the letter J, on the Twitters and you can see the new season of Cloak & Dagger mirroring next Thursday, the 4th, on Freeform. Uh, I'm Jessica Jones, season 3
7: sometime this year. TBD. I'm at Geeky Girlfriend, Girlfriend with No Vowels, uh, on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you can find the first issue of Neon Future on shelves at your local comic book stores or on the homepage of Comixology right now. Woo! Nice.
8: Uh, you can find me on Twitter at CWMonfett. 911, uh, my current show, uh, airs on Mondays on Fox, and 12 Monkeys is on. Hulu, there's four seasons. We'd love if you watch it.
2: Uh, and that's a wrap. You can find Paper Team on every major uh, podcatchers. And real quick, if you're interested in TV writing, which some of you are, starting April 15, we'll, we'll be sitting down with the heads of every major TV writing fellowships, NBC, CBC, Disney, Warner Brothers, to tune in for that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you, and uh, let's give a big round of applause.
1: And that's a wrap on our 2019 WannaCon panel. But before we go, if you enjoyed this panel and want to be notified when the first episode of our TV writing programs and fellowship series drops, don't forget to subscribe to our Paper Team podcast where you will get access to all 120 plus episodes about the craft and business of TV writing available on both iTunes at paperteam.co slash iTunes and all Android podcatchers at paperteam.co slash Android. Don't forget that we are also on Patreon so consider supporting us at paperteam.co slash Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N to get cheat sheets and bonus content. And so we can keep producing an amazing show like this one for you every week. A huge thank you once again to our panelists, and you can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteamco slash 129. The 2019 Script Pipeline season is now open, and the deadline for this year's screenwriting and TV writing season is May 1st. Script Pipeline finalists and winners receive extensive long-term industry exposure, and they have one of the biggest grand prizes for writing worldwide at $50,000. Learn more at scriptpipeline.com. As always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. Nick is at underscore Andy Watson. And next week, well, as mentioned before, that is the start of our one-on-one sit down with the heads of each major TV running program. And we will be starting with the Disney ABC program and talking with Christy Shudden, who oversees it, to look at everything from their application process and selection process to the program itself and what comes after it. So tune in for that starting April 15. that is next week. I'll be amazing. See you then.